welcome back to the Brothers Book Club podcast. We are here today with another in a long line of book review episodes. I was going to pause because I almost wanted to say, and there aren't many more, but that's it's actually just not true. There's one more in this set and then more to come. We are here today to review another Penguin Little Black Classic Edition book. This is a collection of 80 pieces of world literature. Today we're on episode 79, Amanda, so... Here we are. are. (laughs) Celebrate, (laughs) laugh, cry, throw up your hands, uh, ponder deeply at the life decisions you've made, whatever you need. We're basically (laughs) at the end of this journey. So are you feeling excited? I am. I am too, because we're installing in the reviews today a collection of Hindu poetry called Speaking of Shiva. That was the name that Penguin gave it. It is a collection of four medieval Hindu saints that talk about many different topics, and we're here to review that set of poetry that Penguin put together. We will do our best with pronunciations, but if you've been listening to this pod for even a little bit of time, you'll know that the Penguin collection here, the uh, Little Black Classics, it's world literature, so we've seen a lot of names, we've seen a lot of different cultures, and we are bad at pronouncing them, or I should, I statements. I am very bad at pronouncing these names. There are a lot of vowel and consonant combinations that I'm not accustomed to. Today, we'll see a couple of those with some of the saints, the Hindu saints' names. And so we'll do our best. But I think if you're along for the ride, you are generally understanding that we're trying and doing what we can. Amanda, do you just want to pronounce all the names today? Is that cool? Or <laughs> I can I can try. You're the only one. You're just going to put that burden on you. You've been co-host for long enough now where you got to start taking on some of the, the heavy duties, you know, <laughs> some of the podcast responsibilities, man. It's not easy out here. Well, I say let's dive into the basics. We've got yeah. who, what, where, and why questions to answer. We like to start the reviews with just some basic, I guess, biographical information and so do you want to tackle the what, or the, I guess the who rather, like who were these people or just a summary of any anything about them? Sure. Um, there were four poets in this collection. Um, mm-hmm. They're all from the 11th and 12th century um, yep. in a particular part of Canada, uh, I think is the region. Okay. One of them, I did Um, look up a term in one of the poems, and it looked like Southern India to me. Yeah. Of course, that's our modern understanding. When they wrote it, I don't know how India was divided. Right. But yeah, it would be like modern Southern India, coastal. At least one of them. Uh, I think all four of them are from the same region. Oh, okay. This particular type of poetry, from what I understood, um, elevated that region um, because of its um, religious overtones and stuff. Okay, yeah, makes sense. And so that's who they were. I, I will do it now. I'm doing it now. I'm going to read the names now. Ooh, <laughs> we can't avoid go. this forever, people. Um, and I'm not ashamed. <laughs> there are four poets here. Um, uh, Basavana is one. Devara Dasamaya is another. Um, this one's the toughest. Um, Mahad Mahadifiyaka. Mahadevi, there's a Devi in the middle, D-V-I. So it's, I think it's Mahadeviyaka, and then that's one word. And then the final one is Alama Prabhu. And so those those were the four people. I don't think we should get into the who in terms of differentiating them, mostly because I don't I didn't know and don't know, and Wikipedia yeah. told me a couple of things. But do you think it's worth, I guess this is the point. Stylistically, do you think it's worth pulling them apart? 
Um, not really. I will say though that uh, Mahadevayaka, I think, is the only female uh, out of these four. Cool. Poets. Okay, definitely worth saying then. Yeah, and they, you know, they did have a little bit of difference in style and topic, and certainly they have their own little flourishes. But I feel like if you scrambled all this stuff up. It would be, um, except for one thing, which is the way they refer to the god or gods they're talking about. Mm-hmm. If we, it, that accepted, I think the topics and the style is similar enough that it's, it does feel very samey to me, which makes it a good cohesive collection. But um, yeah. So that's who they were. That's what they did and why they mattered. I think you nailed it. I think they included this because they're ending with some religious texts, which the Little Black Classics have not had a ton of. We're going to do some Buddhist stuff next week to close out the 80 episodes. So I think, I mean, gosh, does anyone listening to this really need to be told why religion matters to human history? I think it, you could t- just take your pick of time period, uh, take your pick of development. Obviously, some religious religions have waxed and waned to, to a degree. There are certain eras when certain religious dominated regions and then they waned and, you know, and then there's continental divides and whatever. But I don't really think the why needs to be explained. These are writings from one of the dominant world religions. So you're kind of bought in from the start. You know, you don't have to be a Hindu to enjoy these texts, but we'll get more into that with the style. Are there any basic questions you think we missed before we jump in? Uh, nope, I think we're good. Yeah, we did our diligence, I think. Four different poets, lots to say. Let's begin with the connections. No, we don't do that. We begin, this is what happens when I go off script. I thought I was confident <laughs> enough to freestyle these and I'm just I'm just not. We will not begin with those. We're going to begin as we always do, with the similes. We like to describe the reading experience. I will go first, Amanda, since I put you on the spot with the other one. I thought that I thought that reading this was kind of like the best version of a kind of slightly drugged out college hacky sack circle type of talk. It it is both insightful <laughs> at times in ways you probably don't expect because it's kind of trying to be. I guess mm-hmm. that's the thing when you approach religious texts for people that are in that realm and they are writing cognizant cognitively in that realm, like aware of themselves. They're right. trying to be insightful and profound. That's just part of the deal. You don't get to write about those topics and just casually fire off some like half baked. I mean, maybe they're half baked, but you don't get to casually fire off these half ideas. You kind of have to think that what you have to say is profound but there's also just a simpleness to a lot of these and a simpleness in observation and so mm-hmm. it had that level of you know you just catch one and you think you know that was a pretty basic thing you said you kind of generalized there you kind of did a, an obvious summary or made an obvious metaphor or obvious comparison but it also kind of worked for me and so it had that kind of college you know you're a little your friends are stoned just kind of saying stuff about the universe feeling. And yeah, I think reading these was kind of like that. Not all the time, but that made me remember some of those moments, Amanda. How about for you? Um, for me, I mean, I guess mine is, is kind of similar um, in that I said that reading this is like having a discussion with Socrates if he were a believer um, of this particular religion where there's like lots of questions that seem like it's, um, you know, open-ended and inviting a discussion. But in reality, these questions um, already have like a foregone conclusion to it, which is that he's just like bringing home his particular logic and his particular ideas, which we also saw when we read um, Socrates' defense, the way that he questioned his witness and kind of like got the answers he wanted through his questionings. 
So. Yeah, with with Socrates, one takeaway for us and for me, having going back to him because I had read a lot of the Plato stuff, but it was surprising how much of it was very very leading and really narrow. Yeah. It it just it, it's not even like he was really asking questions. It's just he just preferred that method to get his rhetorical to get to his rhetorical point, which we've interpreted Socratic dialogue to mean much more open ended. That stuff was not right. open ended. It was very right. guiding. <laughs> yeah, uh, he wasn't not. It seems in those dialogues actually interested in dialogue. He just liked to ask yeah. questions to like make sure the other person wasn't sleeping <laughs> or something. Exactly. Yeah, and yeah. so I could see that with these two. I mean, frankly. All of these poems end a very similar way, which is guide me, God, or show me, God, or mm-hmm. t- show, tell me the truth, God, or, you know. And so, yeah, they do end in a very similar place. I will say that m- many of my college interactions that I had described in the aforementioned simile did not end with those proclamations, but they still <laughs> this still felt like a similar uh, psychic wavelength or something <laughs> like it felt right right yeah there was a brevity to some of it you know you, you mm-hmm. it's the classic the stereotypical one is the colors thing it, that's a classic stoned in college somebody goes how do you know that your green is my green? you know it's classic like it's a simple <laughs> little thought it's a a cast off comment that has no clear answer it's it's in the realm of philosophy you know and you can talk about neuroscience if you want or the biology of the eyeball or whatever but yeah, it's just it's some of these had that kind of simple profundity to them. Maybe not full profundity, but yeah, there's a there's a connection there, I think. Yeah, I think so. Let's move now though to the connections, an actual connection. We also like to begin the reviews of these texts with a connection to the year 2020, but when you're listening to this, listener, it may be the year 2021. We haven't fully decided on a release schedule, but we're talking in November, early November. Amanda, any connections to 2020 you found here? Um, I said spirituality, but what I really wanted to kind of focus on was the rejection of materialism. And we've seen in recent years, like the, um, the explosion of, um, tiny homes, right. Which requires kind of more, uh, smaller living almost. So, uh, I think that people who are interested in those types of movements, uh, having a smaller footprint, um, then they might find this kind of interesting. Yeah, certainly that the whole that's like a aesthetic and lifestyle revolution right now. Yeah. Some could say that you well, no, your home. I was gonna say you live in a small home, but man, you got like multiple bedrooms, you got bathroom. You're not even close. I was just gonna yeah, say you yeah. you live comfortably, but like you know not above beyond your means. You know, I always think right. of a house these days since I've lived in small spaces for a while. At, like I think of a place now where I'm like. If I ever lived in a in a space where I didn't use every room every day, it would feel really weird to me, like really mm-hmm. strange. I granted, I, I've done it, so I'm sure I could do it again. The house I grew up in, we had like a family room that wasn't, you know, what didn't really get used every day. A dining room that we would only use for occasions, but that all feels kind of strange to me now. Maybe I'm headed for a tiny home. Oh, yeah. Uh, who knows? You could build one. Oh goodness, I can't. I don't have tools. Maybe I'll borrow some. We'll we'll get into that post pod. Um, yeah, I don't have the, don't have the equipment for that, but I do have some connections. My connection to this text in 2020 is going to just be contradictions, which is broad, but I'll try and expand on it. 
It's just that humans can be real messy creatures and contradict themselves from minute to minute or day to day. And I think this text gets at that pretty well. A lot of the questions that these poets are asking are kind of observations. And now some of it's filtered through gender. They're trying to decide, like, how do I know what my manly nature versus my womanly nature is? And so there's these contradictory parts or these, like, contrasting parts. But it also comes up, there's a line here about how can the unwounded know the pain of the wounded? And there's just, it's sort of if not contradictions at every turn, they, they like to deal with opposites a lot. And I just think, I don't know, this has been a polarized year, I think we could say at the least. A lot of co- people mm-hmm. trying to contradict one another. So I think that, I don't think these have any direct commentary pieces on that, but there's certainly a core humanity to it in there. I'm not sure if you picked up on that too. I definitely did. I, I really enjoyed actually the, the gender aspects of the poetry. Yeah, yeah, maybe we'll get into that now with some quotes. Let's do the deep dive then. We like to get into the bulk of the review and make it about the style, the quotes we noticed and liked, the ones maybe we didn't so much. Do you have one that you want to start with then? Any quotes that you want to jump into? Uh, Sure, I've got... uh, So the two quotes that I pulled today actually um, were both positive ones where I picked out the stuff that I thought was um, cleverly done or well done. Um, So I'll start with um, one by Basavana or Basawana, right? The V is more like a W sound, right? Basawana. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So Basawana. Do your best. Do your best. You're among <laughs> friends here. <laughs> um, and so none of these poems have titles or anything. So, um, Right. This one says, um, and I'll just read the poem because they're super short. Uh, the rich will make temples for Shiva. What shall I, a poor man, do? My legs are pillars, the body the shrine, the head a cupola of gold. Listen, O Lord of the meeting rivers, things standing shall fall, but the moving ever shall stay. Um, so what I liked about this was that I thought that this was actually pretty clever. And, uh, and some of the other poems were clever as well. And I think that the poems are meant to be witty and clever. Um and I so, so I just wanted yeah. to highlight that. And, yeah. Um, I, yeah. I think that they're meant to be clever at it, from what I was reading about it. And um, it said, and I was saying that um, he's playing with the contrast, right? With the, uh, the standing versus the movement, but in the falling versus the, um, the steadiness and also the rich versus the poor. So there's several contrasts that you had mentioned um, earlier in your connection. So we see some of those contrasts and, not only is he like saying uh, the moving ever shall stay, but he's also kind of putting down rich people, which is goes back to that materialism yeah. that I was talking about where he's like, yeah, they can build you a temple, but I mean, all I can offer you is like myself, body and soul. And obviously mine is way better <laughs> yeah. because yeah. mine is lasting forever for you. Right. Yeah. I have like a, a spiritual connection that will, you know, never fade like the material does. It's exactly. a common theme for sure. I, I picked one yeah. here, and yeah, I agree with you. I'm just going to read the whole poem because none of these are longer than half of a page, and they're really brief. Yeah. Um, this one, I think, stylistically is okay, but I think the message is more. I feel more neutrally negative about, but I'll read it first. It's a poem of questions, mostly. It says, What does it matter if the fox roams all over the Jambu Island? Will he ever stand amazed in meditation of the Lord? Does it matter if he wanders all over the globe and bathes in a million sacred rivers? A pilgrim who's not one with you, Ramanatha, roams the world like a circus man. That, I believe Ramanatha is how they're calling God in that poem. 
Mm-hmm. But it's, I think the questions are, are fine. You know, the imagery, the bathing, the purity of that, I think is kind of a religious idea that cuts across, I don't know, a major world religion that doesn't have kind of a view of cleansing, you know, and has that right. sort of water is a, is a key image and kind of a key thematic element that all of them use in different ways. So that kind of rang is kind of simple, but I don't know. A lot of the poems have a little twist like the circus man where you think like it's trying to be playful or I don't know if again, it's just in the translation where that reads as sort of, I don't know. It's, it's not goofy or silly, but certainly circus man is kind of an evocative, funny thing. I think to most people now, at least in the West. So yeah, I can't say I was moved deeply by the message there, which is basically like, keep the Lord with you always, you know, you can't, doesn't matter if you're pretending it doesn't matter if you you know bathe in the if you go to the sacred places like if you're not you know if you're not being true to the faith that you're adhering to what's the point and it's not going to work which i think you know i that message is fine i'm not sure this poem moved me but that little bit at the end i think was indicative of a lot of these poems have had a thing is what i would say in capitals they had a reference a word a twist where it just is enough of a pause for me to think, huh, okay, I'm not really sure, you know, how to unpack it. And so, yeah, I just think that that adds, it just adds enough to maybe make it so it doesn't feel monotonous or it doesn't bog you down too much. I call it a flourish if you want, but it's there's just enough playfulness or fun into it that makes something maybe a little more pedestrian, have some mm-hmm. intrigue or depth or something. And I wonder too... Um when you mentioned specifically like uh, your Western possibly perspective kind of influencing your understanding of the poem, I wondered that with several of these poems as well. Yeah, um, yeah. Just cause we're not, we didn't grow up with um, in that culture or with that religion. So it's interesting to see um, some of the word choices, like what is the actual intent there and stuff like that. And actually my other uh, poem quote is actually deals with that as well as like mm, the playfulness of the poetry but also is like is it meant to be like that or is that just my western understanding of certain words is that what i'm actually pulling up on so yeah yeah no i agree there's and the funny thing is with poems this brief you can never know if you're over or under reading without help you know i i it's hard for me to say like how much interpretive effort should I put into circus man? I mean, it, does right. it just mean a, an uncaring goof? Does it mean a person who travels a lot and so is obsessed right. with material things? Maybe I, it, it does it mean, yeah, I don't know. I, the, the connotations there, they seem a little bound by culture. So I, it's right. difficult. And that's when we don't know fully with texts like this, if that's just a good translative work or a good work of right. translation or, if we're uh, overthinking it, but that certainly I think the thing that I don't know if I'm going to say saves these poems, but as someone who has a very little interest in reading like core religious texts at this point in his life, these were interesting enough because of those small bits. I think that's what gave it some propulsion to me. Did you have another quote that illustrated any of this? I do have one. If you want me to double up that I think also had a, a word choice that I just couldn't unpack. I'm not sure if you want me to do mine next. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, again, I'll read the whole poem. This one, I think, is from the the woman, um, which is the Mata, Maha Devi Yaka. You said that was the only one that was uh, a woman or a female poet? Yes. Okay. She's the, the only female one, I believe. Okay. That thematically lines up. A lot of the images in this one are uh, childbearing or, or motherhood or something, but I'll read it. 
What do the barren know of birth pangs? Stepmothers, what do they know of loving care? How can the unwounded know the pain of the wounded? O Lord, white as jasmine, your love's blade stabbed and broken in my flesh. I writhe. O mothers, how can you know me? I think that one, it was certainly one of the more aggressive, which I liked in tone. It was a nice, some of these end up being kind of a shoulder shrug or just they get to the usual conclusion of just, I put my belief in you, guide me kind of a vibe. This one, I think, has some tough questions in it and some, you know, there's the barrenness and the stepmother. So there's the, you know, a lot of topics around birthing and childbirth, childbearing. But then, you know, the Lord stabbed the blade, stabbed flesh, and then I writhe. It's a, it's a great little one, you know, quick line, little two word line. It's pretty harsh. I guess what I wanted to unpack with you, though, is the ending. Like, why call out the mothers at the end? Is that just another, is she just filtering a lot of this? unfamiliarity of humanity or kind of disconnect of humans through motherhood is that I just don't, it says, Oh mothers, how can you know me? It, why that? I mean, couldn't she have said like you atheists, you know, I, again, I don't know if the translation would use that term, but I just, why the mothers thing? I don't, is it because she question. was, it could be personal, right? This is why right. we need the scholarship or whatever. It's why when you deal with texts a thousand years old, you just need help. Like I, it could be that she was barren and was just writing about her pain. And so she's like, if you have a child and I don't get, and I can't have any, like you don't know me, what I'm, you know, I have strife. I have a struggle, but I don't know that again, Wikipedia, I didn't do, do a deep dive. I, I did read up on her in particular because her, her poems in particular, I enjoyed. So I thought that her poems out of the four were my favorite. So that's the person that I I did the most research on. And uh, she, so because it was so long ago, they're not a hundred percent sure about her life. Um, But no, she did not have any children, but it was by choice. Sure. And that, and that makes, you know, and granted the imagery in that one, that opening little stanza relied on like, the idea of being barren, but still, yeah, it could just be that she's calling mothers who chose and, you know, she's choosing not to. And so that could become a dominant given social conditions. That could be just like the dominant idea in her life and the thing she dwelt on the most or something. It makes perfect sense. It was, it's more biting that poem and it doesn't, it doesn't have a tidy conclusion and it doesn't Mm -hmm. end satisfied with that her faith will provide all answers, et cetera. So, which, you know, is the kind of ambiguity I'm looking for in any poem. So to find it in a religious one felt uh, particularly, I don't know, intriguing to me, I guess I could say. It's also, again, oddly violent. Now, religion and religious texts can be hyper-violent in a way, but yeah, it felt personal. It felt violent. It kind of was unexpected. It was harsh. I just thought, yeah, tonally I enjoyed it. I think maybe I did like her stuff more than the rest now that I now that you put it that way. Yeah, I think hers had a little bit more uh, scope to it rather than just religion. I think she also had more commentary on like gender roles and gender expectations and like kind of shunning them um, from the female Mm -hmm. perspective. Did you pull a poem of hers too? Of course. Yes. Let's do it. (laughs) Let's get into it. Um, So this one says people, male and female, Blush when a cloth covering their shame comes loose. When the Lord of lives lives drowned without a face in the world, how can you be modest? When all the world is the eye of the Lord, onlooking everywhere, what can you cover and conceal? Um, so 
I think what what I enjoyed about this is that um, you see again that contrast, the male and female. So it's not just that women must cover their shame, right? But all people cover their shame. And here, this is like where I was talking about the Western perspective. In Western um, culture, the the word shame means specifically the genitalia, that your privates, right? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. but I wonder if that also translates into this poem because the shame here is actually talking about like their sins. Right. But could it also be the idea of uh, the, the, the clothing not being necessary, which is what made me also look up her information because um, I found out that she um, often shunned clothing and walked around naked apparently because she's like what's the point <laughs> yeah right right um, to live so, so openly uh, exactly um and so it's like there's no point in in hiding yourself in any way because you're always exposed to god um which also is like i mean the idea of modesty is like being thrown into people's face here like there's no such thing as like a need for female modesty in particular and and the idea of like um clothing hiding your sexuality and stuff it's like not necessary yeah. so i just thought that was really important uh, not important but interesting have we not then in this quote stumbled upon one of the great infuriating things of doing any religious text un- textual unpacking which is if you ride out basically any of the rhetoric to the extremes it becomes pretty clear how Basically, everyone fails at this. <laughs> like, there's no one adhering well enough to the religion, you know, other than maybe some monks or people out there, like, cloistered away, some nuns or something. But, I, yeah. you know, I was raised in the Christian tradition, and if you interpret Jesus's words even 10% uh, rigidly, I don't know if many people are, are really doing it. <laughs> right. Uh, right. And so that becomes the maddening thing, where it's like, how much of this is just self-appeasement and comfort for you versus an actual way of life you want to adhere to. The other thing right. though is this is the other maybe crux of the matter. This is where it else becomes maddening though. Cause that, that can be a truth, but then also you stumble upon because there's so much text, people can just wriggle out of it. However they want. There's too much text. Like when you yeah. write a million things, you can eventually put together enough of them to say whatever you want. <laughs> you know, it's why the televangelist has his own private jet because of some scripture thing buried in Luke somewhere, whatever, whatever. Like at some point you've created a maze with infinite outs. <laughs> you've got a maze with infinite play- solves. And so yep. like, what does it mean anything at that point? Like what's the meaning here? What are we doing? So yeah, I don't know. There, there's a lot of contradictions and things that, I think make for fascinating study, but maybe that's just my, how I approached it in my life or something, but yeah, no, it's fascinating. I, and not having come, like you said, I, I never came from a Hindu background. Don't know too much about Hinduism beyond schooling. So yeah, it's, it's weird though. Did you find that reading this was a little more fun than doing, like if I handed you Christian poetry, I don't know, would you be more excited, less excited? I would be less excited just cause I think growing up with it you're like familiar with it and you're just like okay i get it like i already know the core values and stuff but perhaps if it were like christian poetry from like the early 
times, maybe I would be more inclined to read it, but not necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. this one, I think because it's we're coming at it from a completely different perspective and a completely different culture, it's more interesting because I feel like I'm actually learning about something that I had yep. no previous knowledge of. Yeah, I, I like to think I we in, the way we interpret and approach it doesn't cross the line into it's just better because it's we don't do the exoticism thing you know but right. but frankly it's true i would rather read this and i feel like i you know i got my dose of christianity i feel like i understand most of its ethical principles its moral ideas like i don't and then the technical ritualistic stuff too it's like i think i get it but you know never perfectly i'm not some ministers but i i was inundated enough to feel like okay i get it so yeah at this point now i'm just craving anything different i don't know maybe it's that simple i think it is i hope it's not something to make it feel like uh an exotic thing it just feels i I would way more read this than the christian equivalent whatever that would be also i think we did because early in the collection we read gerard manley hopkins i think was his name and i think he was a if not a I was about to say a pope. That's not the word. He definitely wasn't a pope. Uh, what's the, you know, the guys who dress up in the thing and the not nuns? A friar. Yeah, like a friar or something. So he was something like that. But um, anyway, yeah, I think we made we made good points on that. Any final thoughts on the quotes before we do the literary corner? Nope, I'm good. Excellent. Well, let's jump to it. I know you pulled the term for this week. The literary corner for the listeners is when we try and educate you on some kind of literary term, rhetorical device, some specific technical thing that we can help us or that that helps us rather understand the work a little better uh take it away amanda because you've got this covered yeah um so uh, i pulled up the term um wakana or wachana sahitya that is correct sahitya um sorry uh so it's it is this poetry, this type of poetry specifically. So this is the term used for this poetry. Um, and it is rhythmic writing. So it looks like poetry, but it's more kind of like the flow is almost like more prose. Um, yeah, and it's yeah. from um, Canada, which is that region that we were talking about. And it evolved in the 11th century and flourished in the 12th century. And it was a part of the Sharana movement. And um, the word wakanas literally means that which is said so they're writing down exactly what they're saying i guess yeah another case Um, when we should be reading this out loud did you read these out loud i did not i didn't either but i can imagine the cadence especially since i was going to pull a term i was trying to find the right term and i just looked up uh eponius is it eponymous what's the word for like a title title of a person well whatever I was just trying yeah. to pull a literary term about names and titles because the thing that you'll notice between all these poets is that they, they refer to the gods or God as different things. Like one calls mm-hmm. it, the, like you said, the Lord of Meeting Rivers. Another one says yeah. white as Jasmine. Another one says a different. So there's just, they're working in these different titles, but the repetition of that definitely felt felt like classic religious text to me where you could hear people mumbling that. I could, yeah, that right. part I can imagine pretty clearly where you can hear people saying that and reiterating it and kind of mumbling it. But yeah, I didn't, I didn't read them out loud either. I'm a, I don't practice what I preach. So that's the pod we're doing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's harder too, because we don't know what the, the original sound of it would be anyway, since it's in a translated. So yeah. Um, But uh, these are brief paragraphs and they end with one or the other local names under which Shiva is invoked, which would be the Lord of the meeting rivers and, 
um, Lord oh. White is Jasmine. Yeah. Wow. So it is Shiva they keep referring to. That makes 100% yep. sense. The title of the collection is Speaking of Shiva. I suppose because a couple of them didn't invoke it, I just didn't. My brain didn't make that incredibly obvious connection, but yes, <laughs> uh, that just means I'm glad to help. <laughs> I am not attentive, and I don't know why anyone's listening to this. <laughs> but yeah, that actually makes complete sense. I just, yeah, I was, just, I, I suppose that's the other thing, though, right? It's it's a um, polytheistic religion, so all I can do is, you know, the safer thing for me to do is just hold up my hands and say, I I don't know. I mean, there's there's tons of the gods. I don't I'm not going to yep. claim to know any of them or the differences. Right. And I, I I could give you a, the worst rough sketch ever, but I it's far easier for me to know there's God and then His Son Jesus, and that's it. You're good. Well, there's the Holy Ghost thing, but that's you know whatever. <laughs> and so anyway, yeah. Part of it was just me thinking, ah, well, you know, there's multiple gods. It could be. I'm sure there's a different one. There's probably a fertility one. There's you know, and just looking at other traditions. But um, right. Okay. Yeah. It was all about Shiva. That makes a million times more sense. Thank you, Amanda, for the clarification <laughs> for saving the pod. <laughs> Very welcome. Woo. Almost blew that one right at right at the last uh, right at episode seventy nine. Almost had a huge unforced error, but that's okay. We're chugging right along here, people. Right into, in fact, the final part of the podcast. We are now going to review it properly. Start with the so what's good about it segment, I guess we'll call it. This is when we give yeah. genuine praise to the work we read by giving some kind of compliment. I will start, I suppose. Is it so simple for me to praise the brevity? I think if you're going to hit me with your religious text, let's not make it overly long. You know, mm-hmm. I took a college course and I read the entire New Testament. Let's not do that. Let's not make it <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of pages if we can avoid it and and then write supplemental texts on it for infinity for the till the mm-hmm. end of time. I just think that can become inaccessible and burdensome and whatever. This was very tidy. And the, again, not only are all of these short or all of these collections very short, which helps, it's 55-ish pages, but the poems themselves, you know, you can read one in under 10 seconds, it'll give you some kind of provocation probably to think through, and yeah, I enjoyed that format, it really worked for me. I also enjoyed the brevity, um, but what I pointed out is um, I enjoyed the kind of feminist slant. Sure, um, yeah. Specifically from Mahadevayaka, Mm -hmm. and... um, it, she wasn't the only one who kind of like talked about uh, women. There were also like other gender fluid moments in some of the other poems and by some it's of true. the other poets that I found interesting. It's true. There were some metaphors in there. There were some metaphors rather in there that, yeah, could be interpreted in pretty fluid ways, I think. It, yeah. You know, and we will always plead ignorance to the translation and with no annotations, it's you know, I can only speculate, but yeah, it certainly seemed translated in a way to leave that open, to kind of leave those questions out there in an explicit way, not even really that implicit. Yep. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, those are both things to praise about it. Well, let's just review it then, Amanda, with no more procrastinating, no more analysis. Let's do this. Number 79, uh, we rate these books and we review them in a simple manner. It is a yes, no, maybe system. Yes, you should read this. No, definitely pass. Or maybe... You want to go first this week, Amanda? What's the review? Sure. I said, um, maybe. Yeah. Um, which surprised me because generally, like, when it comes to religious texts like this, it can feel super preachy. But I think, to your point, the brevity helped to mitigate that. And also, yeah. by looking at it from 
more of like a cultural aspect and also focusing in on like um, feminism and gender identity that really uh, sparked my interest as far as reading these poems. So I think that if you come at it from a particular um, cultural angle, um, I think that this could be really interesting. Yeah. Um, and if you are interested or you know anything about uh, the religion, then this could also be an interesting read for you. It's like um, short and, and entertaining in a lot of ways as far as um, some of the, the wit and the cleverness in some of their word choices and their, their ideas. So, yeah. Yeah. This one is a maybe, and I'm going to do a little bit of a fantasy here, a verbal fantasy for the listeners. This would be, I agree with you. I turned on this or, or turned on my expectations because religious texts as we've gone on in this pod to talk about, they are just too heavy handed often, not always, but I don't need themes told to me. And they're, they're the prime example of doing that sometimes. Right. So that's been tiresome in the past, but I think with one fantastical edition, this would be a yes. I would take the version of this, same four poets. I thought they were different enough to be intriguing, but they I can see why they put them together as well. It's its a little bit of both, which is cool. But right. if you give me this book, maybe a few more poems for each person, whatever, give me the 10-page essay before each poet's poems are set up or are given, that would be a yes to me. I just need the little touch of scholarship up front to say, all right, here's the basics of what we know. Here's the stylistic influence they probably had. Here's some, here's some effects that their poetry maybe was, here's a movement it was involved in. Here's how it's been evoked throughout history. Give me, give me something. Just give me a little something that I think would push me over the edge on this. Like that's the kind of thing that I would need to assist me with something this old, I think. And maybe mm -hmm. even this foreign and the literal like cross culture across the world type of way. And so, right. yeah, I think it's a maybe though. I feel quite comfortable saying that. I kind of enjoyed reading these for the, you know, the brevity, as I already said, did a ton of work for me that really helped and made them, you know, pretty enjoyable, pretty thoughtful reads. Haiku-esque, should we say? I know you and I were both really high on the haiku. Yeah, we've really enjoyed the haiku, I think, because of the uh, the imagery specifically and i did almost make a comparison to the haiku with these poems but um the focus of each the themes for each one are, are different and i think that i still prefer haiku <laughs> me too yeah me too yeah. i come down in the same position i completely agree i think the haiku were gosh so beautifully open-ended and then also yeah. just had such great turns in them and these reflected that too and then again you know you get five poems in a row that say lord of the meeting rivers help me or you know and so it's a little bit of both but i think in terms of a religious text really took me by surprise i'm hoping that next week and we'll transition to that now final review in the entire collection will be on the dahamapada which is kind of an original Buddhist text that is buried in some other work. We will do the Wikipedia background for next week's episode, uh, for the final episode too in this set. So look forward to that. And yeah, we'll be covering another religious text before we close out the collection. Any final thoughts on these poems, Amanda? Uh, nope, I'm good. Excellent. Well, until next week with the final episode of the Little Black Classic set, we will see you between, I guess, the one singular classic. <laughs>